Hey everyone, welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. We are so honored that you would take a few minutes and you would join us, even if it's through an app on your phone right now. We're just honored that you would spend the time with us. And I want to encourage you, if you want to spend time with us in person, we would love to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 197 Imperial Boulevard in Hendersonville, Tennessee. We would love to meet you. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to serve you. So make plans to join us. But right now, I hope that you enjoy this message and we hope that it encourages you and it blesses you today. How many of you guys loved Pastor Clint's message last week? And how many of you guys used the phrase, just keep dipping this week? Because I know I did. I was like, just keep dipping, just keep dipping. It kind of turned into like a Dory thing in my mind, like just keep dipping, just keep dipping. You know, like it was so constant in my mind this week. So I was so grateful for that word. But we are back into our Truth Is series. And like Pastor Clint said, I get to talk about feminism. And I'm sure that some of you guys are like, but you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be worried. It's not a scary thing. Um, and because like the point of this whole series is to give you guys a biblical foundation so that when you come up against something in culture that can feel kind of scary, it doesn't have to be scary because we know what the Bible says. So today we're just going to talk about the truth of like, what does God say about women? But before we get to all of that, is this ringing? Can I do something to make it not ringing? Okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> Before we get to all of that, I thought that it would be really fun to talk about some of the things, um, the different experiences that women have versus men. All right. And I know, I am aware that there are things that men deal with that women don't. I, I understand that. I value that. Um, but I am a woman and I have the microphone. I'm going to speak from my experience and from some other ladies. But first, I want to talk about real quick, um, men. Have y'all ever had an outfit, a whole outfit from head to toe that has not had one pocket? Anybody? Anybody? You have? Okay. Well, you know, most women, like I, I have this jacket and I was like, oh, I have pockets. But you know what? I was at Allison's house last night and she had the super cute jacket that had this and there were no pockets. It wasn't even like it was um, like you had to cut them out. Like there were just no pockets. And men, most of y'all just don't get that. And I know that because whenever Clint wears these swimming trunks that don't have pockets, he'll just look at me with his stuff and just hold it out and be like, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, welcome to my life. You want a purse? Do you want a purse? So men, they just don't get it. And a lot of guys don't understand what it's like having to plan out your hair washing schedule. Can I get an amen from some ladies? My gosh, I cannot tell you how many Fridays I have just had really gross hair because I know if I wash my hair on Friday, I'm either going to have to wash it again on Saturday, which is just stupid, or I'm going to have to wake up early and wash it Sunday. But then I have to think like, well, what's the weather going to be? What am I doing that day? Should I wear it curly or should I wear it straight? How much time do I have? Like men, you don't understand that. Clint can get up and in the shower and ready to go in 10 minutes and look perfect. And I'm like, I'm not even done in the shower in 10 minutes. It's insane. You guys just don't understand. And some of you guys, like we were talking about this last night and Clint was like, well, I mean, I kind of get that. Like, I, I have to think about when I shower. So I figured there are probably men who are like, oh, I know what you're talking about. So I also wanted to talk about something that I know not a single man can relate to, 
and I'm not going to go into detail, nobody has to get crazy, but childbirth. Y'all can't do it, and you want to know how I know that you can't understand? It's because I have gone through three childbirths with a man, and he just never got it. Like, he never got it. With our first, I had a C-section. It was, I was super sick, had a C-section. It was not great, but done, whatever. With our second, I was like, well, I don't want another C-section. And so I found a provider who would let me have a baby naturally. And so this was my first experience with contractions. And let me tell you, they're not fun. They're not good. And so I was induced and they broke my water, which um, took away any kind of like cushion. And so every um, like two to three minutes for a minute to a minute and a half, I felt like um, a spiky bowling ball was trying to bust out of my belly button. That's like the most accurate description I can give you. And I did that every two to three minutes for four and a half hours. And I thought like beforehand, like I said, I didn't get to labor at all with Reuben. And so I was like doing all of this prep and I thought I'm going to get like these scripture cards and Clint's going to read me scripture and it's going to help bring me peace while I'm in labor. And I had never labored before. So I didn't know how to tell Clint to help me and Clint didn't know how to help me. And so he pulled out these cards and he had been like face to face with me. He pulls out these cards and starts reading when a contraction comes. I said, no, stop. You have to look at my eyes. Like it was, that wasn't working. And if you knew Clint when he was 25, you would know that he hated making eye contact for a long time. So that was a lot of fun for him. And so I labored like that for four and a half hours. I finally was like, I'm done. Our code word was Donald Duck. That was like my I'm absolutely done word. And I was like, Donald Duck. And so I got an epidural. I went to sleep. And I don't know who woke up first, but Clint rolls over and he looks at me. And the first words out of this man's mouth to me were, whew, I'm exhausted. So that was baby number two. There's a third baby. We had a third baby together. So the third baby, fast forward, and I am, um, I am, I went into labor with Lucy. I was not induced. And so I was at home laboring all day long with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And um, my doula told me that walking would like keep the contractions going. And so I had walked on the literal surface of the sun that is South Florida in August and decided that was a bad idea. And so later in the day, I had packed the two kids up. I wish that I had the picture. I had, I've never been more miserable in my life. I took the two kids to the mall and decided to walk around the mall, which is great. But like I said, walking makes contractions get worse. And so then I am stuck there with worse contractions, having to drive home at night to put the kids in bed. And it was just a day. And so by midnight, I had called my doctor. She agreed it was time to come in. We, our babysitter was there. And so we get in the car and we start driving and we have to drive for an hour because that was the closest hospital. I didn't have to have a C-section because Florida is crazy. And we're driving and we get about halfway there. Active labor had been all day. And Clint looks at me and goes, my stomach kind of hurts. My stomach hurts. And I was like, please tell me more about your stomach hurting, please. (laughs) Men just don't get it. They don't get it. And these are like funny and lighthearted and stuff. But there are some things that men don't get that like aren't as fun, like the mental load that women carry. Like it's hard. There are times that I'll be looking at Clint and he'll just be looking off into space. And I'm like, what are you thinking about? And he'll go, nothing. And he means it. He means it. He's thinking about nothing. I have never once thought about nothing in my whole life. I'm always thinking about something. I'm replaying a conversation. I am thinking about dinner that night. I am thinking about the friend that I haven't called the last four days who had a birthday four days ago because I keep forgetting because I'm doing all the things. Did I move the laundry? Did the kids get a bath? Like all of these things all over and over and over again. And it's exhausting. 
or men, you don't really understand like the, the societal pressure that gets put on women around kids. Like if you don't have kids, who are you? Are you even a woman if you don't have kids, if you decide that that's not for you? But then if you do, you can't win for losing because if you stay home, you're wasting your potential. Like, why would you do that? Why are you so lazy as a stay-at-home mom? What do you do all day? Or if you decide to go to work, oh, how dare you? Like, you're letting somebody else raise your kids. What an awful woman you are. Like, men don't get it. And men don't get that, like, you can't, there are places that I can't go at night, or I feel like I can't go at night by myself. Or whenever I'm walking to my car at night, I have my keys in between my, my fists so that, like, if I need a weapon, I have one. Like, there are just some things that men don't think about that women have to deal with. It's just different. And these differences are not bad. Like, it, I'm not angry at men for not knowing these differences and not being able to understand them. But the differences are really like at the foundation of feminism. That's where feminism came from, was these even bigger gaps in life experiences. Like, all the way back, it started when our country started. It was back in 1776. This is one of my favorite things I have ever read because Abigail Adams was sassy and I love her. I love her. So her husband, John Adams, was writing like an interim constitution, essentially. It was like after the Declaration of Independence, before we had a constitution, there had to be something, right? And so John Adams was responsible for writing this. And I love that she, she wrote to him and she said, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire that you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. And she goes on and she's like, hey, listen, if you don't think about us and you don't include us, don't be shocked whenever we rise up and we refuse to like bend to the laws that we didn't have any representation in. She says that to her husband. And I was like, oh, that's sassy. But really, she was just looking for the rights that were promised to her in the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. Like all of these things were supposed to be for all of the people of America and she wasn't seeing that for the ladies. And so then you fast forward and honestly she didn't get those things because it really wasn't until 1920 that women even had the right to vote. Like women had no representation. They couldn't own a bank account. They couldn't open up a bank account. They couldn't own property. There were so many things that they couldn't do because they weren't men. That was it. That was the only reason they couldn't. So finally in 1920, the 19th Amendment was a passed. And then in the 40s, I promise that we're going to get to scripture. I just need to lay the foundation of what, how feminism started. In the 1940s, all the ladies had to go to work because where were the men? They were fighting the war. And so ladies had to go into the workforce and then they stayed there. And by like the 60s and 70s, they started going, hey, why am I not getting paid the same amount as this guy for doing the same job? Or why can't I even apply to that job? Because I'm a woman. Like, this isn't fair. And so feminism turned from this equality in, like, just basic rights to equality in the workplace and um, equal pay and all of that stuff. And if that is where feminism stopped, I am here for it. I am here for it because I absolutely believe that women should have a seat at the table. I believe that women should be able to do whatever they want to do, um, whatever God has called them to do. It shouldn't matter whether they're male or female. But modern day feminism is not that anymore. Modern day feminism has morphed and it has shifted into something that the early women of feminism would be sad to see, I think. Because not only does God-given gender not matter in feminism anymore, 
there are, it's full of lies that are pitting people against each other. I think people get nervous about feminism because you're afraid that an angry feminist is going to get up here and be like, power to the women, like, because that's, that is what we have seen feminism grow into. And it's full of lies. Like, women don't need men. I think we need men, but feminism would say that we don't need men. Or gender is just a social construct. It's just something that we've made up. They would say, they might not say this in words, but how they fight and what they believe in, the lie is a career means more than raising children. Because they're only fighting for women who want to be in the workforce. What about the women that want to stay home? Like, do they not mean anything? Or feminism freed women. That, lie, that is a lie. That's a lie because the feminist movement in the 70s, that's like, I'm trying to decide how far to go. That was, uh, it was very open and free and everybody could do anything with anybody they wanted and you know it started like pornography went crazy and then like that has just stemmed into this sexual addiction of our culture which has gone into sexual slavery and I would dare say that the women and kids who are stuck in sexual slavery do not feel very free. That is a lie. Feminism has not freed women. Or one of the lies is anger is power. Anger is power, but we just talked in clickbait about how anger doesn't do anything except keep you captive. Anger is not power. That is a lie. And I think that the one that has affected the most people that feminism has really shot to the forefront is my autonomy is more important than anything and comes before even the right to life. Because in the feminist movement of the 70s, that's when we saw Roe v. Wade passed. And millions and millions of babies never got a chance to live. And listen, I need y'all to know, I, I just mentioned that, but if there is somebody in this room that has had an abortion, has thought about having an abortion, I need you to know, like, no judgment. We love you. And I just want you to know that, that I don't want that to feel like a... Um, condemnation, because it's not. Uh, so I need to say that. I know a lot of people, somebody very close to me has had an abortion, and there is no judgment. But it's still sad, and that started with the movement of feminism. And so these lies are everywhere in modern-day feminism. So what does that mean? Do we just, like, kick it to the curb, and we're like, forget it. Forget it. We don't need feminism. We don't need to worry about it, and just women can just sit at home. Like, is that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Or is there space in Christianity for feminism. We're going to talk about that today. What does that mean? So when we think about these questions, it's really important to go in the right order because we can't just take feminism as a whole. We can't accept the whole thing, take the Bible up to it, and see where the Bible fits into feminism. We can't do that. We can't do that with any of the lies that we're talking about in this series. We have to take scripture, and we put feminism on top of that, and we see what parts of feminism line up with scripture. We have to start with that as our foundation. And so for the rest of the time today, we're going to just be looking at what the Bible says about women. How are we supposed to see women? How does God view ladies? And I want to make sure that you guys know this isn't really a, a conversation about complementarian versus egalitarian, which is just a really churchy way of, there's more to it than that, but it's a churchy way of saying like, 
women cannot lead and teach or women can lead and teach. Um, because I think that me standing up here and giving the message is kind of clear about where we fall on that line. And I'm always willing to like talk and have those conversations because believe it or not, I did not grow up believing that I could ever lead or teach in church. This was not something that I ever thought I would do, but God opened my eyes. I saw a different way of interpreting scripture that I believe is more accurate, and here I am. So if you ever want to have those conversations, I am happy to have them. But I wanted this to be able to be encouraging and edifying for all of the saints and not just those called to full-time pastoral ministry. So that's not exactly what this is about. Um, but let's get started and jump in. And hey, we're about to start the note part. If you have the app... I put the notes in there so you can fill in the blanks in there and it's really easy. But make sure that you email them to yourself today or they'll be gone next week. You can't like go back and see them. So you got to email them to yourself today. Okay, so today we're going to get started with Jesus. What, how did Jesus see women? Because if Jesus is God in flesh, we can know that how Jesus treated women is how God sees women. Guess what? Jesus was wildly pro-woman. He was wildly pro-woman. The New Testament is full of experiences of Jesus with women, and I want to highlight a couple of them today. The first is Mary of Bethany. So how many of you guys have heard the story of Jesus going into Martha's house, and Martha is like, and Mary is just sitting there at Jesus' feet. Have you all heard that? I know I grew up hearing, like, work less, worship more, which is true. That does, that's a true lesson that you can get from that. But I want to look a little closer at exactly what Mary was doing and why it's important. So Luke 10 says, As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. And so I'm not sure if you hear that and you think of like Mary sitting crisscross applesauce and like at a library story time and, you know, just me, but that's not what this was. In the first century, the, the idea of sitting at somebody's feet, at a rabbi's feet, was a place of honor. It was a place of discipleship. It was a place of higher education, which women did not have access to then. They were lucky to get any education, and they certainly weren't getting continued education. And so Jesus was allowing Mary to sit at his feet as a disciple and listen and learn and become more like him. That was huge. Most rabbis would not have allowed a woman to be there. And so not only was he allowing her to do that, but he encouraged her to do that and challenged Mary to do the same thing. The story goes on, not Mary, Martha. The story goes on, and the Lord said to Martha, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all of these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So Jesus not only allowed a woman to sit at his feet and be a disciple and to learn from him, he encouraged another woman to do the same thing, which was unheard of in that society, because Jesus loves women. The second woman I want to talk about with Jesus is the woman at the well. The woman at the well. Briefly, if you don't know the story, I never want to assume that people know the story. 
Jesus and his disciples were traveling somewhere, and the quickest way to get there was through Samaria. But Jewish people and Samaritans were not friends. They would do everything they could do to avoid going into Samaria and avoid seeing Samaritan people because of years and years and years and years of conflict. And so his disciples were like, okay, we're going to go around. But the Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I love that because Jesus had to go meet this woman at the well. So they're traveling through Samaria at the very middle of the day, the hottest point of the day. Jesus meets this woman. It's just he and her, just Jesus and this woman, which was not okay. In this culture, it was not okay for a man to speak to a woman by himself, but Jesus didn't care. So Jesus starts talking to this woman and says, why don't you go and get your husband? And she said, well, you know, she kind of like shirks it. And he went, oh, I know. I know that you've been married five times and the man that you're with isn't even your husband. I, I know that. And he still loved her and called her up to something better. And this is the end of their conversation. It says, but the time is coming. This is Jesus speaking. Indeed, it is here now. When worshipers will come, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And this is one of the first recorded times that Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. And he chose to reveal himself to a woman. He chose to reveal himself to this woman. And the story continues. It says, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, remember, because this wasn't okay. He wasn't supposed to be doing this. Um, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. I love this because Jesus chose this woman, one, to reveal himself to her. That's huge. That, that's huge. But then this woman who was broken, who was unaccepted, she was, women didn't go to the well in the middle of the day because they wanted to go with their friends. They went to the well in the middle of the day because they weren't accepted by society and didn't want to see people at the well. He chose this woman who was broken, who was alone, who was shunned from society to one, reveal himself to, and two, to become essentially the first Gentile missionary. She ran back to these people of Samaria who had been at odds with Jewish people for years and years and years, and she told them about Jesus, and they came and they saw for themselves. He chose a woman to do that. And there are so many other women that I wish I could go into detail about, like the woman with the issue of blood, that woman, she had been bleeding for years and years and years. And in the Jewish culture, she was unclean. She couldn't hug people. She couldn't touch people. She couldn't go to dinner at her friend's house. Like She had to be by herself, or else people who came in contact with her had to go do all of these rituals to then be clean themselves again. And when she touched Jesus, Jesus didn't shout, unclean, unclean. No, Jesus looked at her, and he saw her where she was, and he healed her because of her faith. He affirmed her belief in him. She, he, he allowed her to touch him, and he loved her because Jesus loves women, or women, woman, woman. Um, my, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> my, I didn't take my Adderall today and I am feeling it. My brain is all over the place. Um, I think my very favorite woman that had anything to do with Jesus is Mary Magdalene. And this isn't in your notes. I'm not going to go into crazy details, but Mary Magdalene went from being possessed by seven demons to then funding Jesus's ministry like traveling and funding some of his ministry to then, oh, I love this. This is my biggest thing when people say that women can't teach and they can't preach. Because listen, who did Jesus reveal himself to first when he was resurrected? Mary Magdalene. He, out of everybody in the entire world, he chose Mary Magdalene to reveal himself to. And then he didn't just, he wasn't just like, hey, here I am. He looked at her and he commissioned her and he said, go and tell go and I'm like, whoa, getting fired up. So I love Mary Magdalene. But all of these, all of this to say, like Jesus was wildly pro-woman. So if Jesus is so pro-woman, therefore God is like, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where there is this tension and women feel the need to fight for something? Women feel the need to stand up for themselves. Like where did this tension come from? And to find that out, we're going to go all the way back to the garden, which I think is really interesting because we didn't intend for all of these messages to end up there. That wasn't our intention. It, we've just ended up like that. But I think that it shows us, one, like a lot of our problems really do stem from the fall. And two, Satan isn't that creative. He's been using the same tactics from the very beginning. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. This is after they have sewn up these fig leaves and um, they have then tried to hide from the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe. You know, they thought if they like hid that he wouldn't know where they were. And so they were hiding. They came out. They confessed what they did. And then there were consequences because sin has consequences. Even though sin is forgiven and there is grace and Jesus died for our sins, our sins have consequences. And so God was, was handing out these consequences and he gave them to the serpent and then Eve was next. Genesis chapter three, verse 16 says, then he who's God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And every woman said, amen. Whew, yes, we do. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So right here is where that struggle started where the head started budding. Because when sin entered the world, it not only condemned us to death one day, but it messed up God's design. God's design was not for there to be this tension, for there to be this fighting of men are better than women, no, women are better than men. That wasn't his design. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he created men and women uniquely to reflect different parts of his image. We are unique and we are different, but one is not better than the other. We are made equally in his image. And so I want to look a little bit closer at God's design, specifically for women. What does, how did women start? Well, let's go back to the very, very, very beginning and I think that these words are words that I know have been used against me. And I don't think that I'm the only woman that has heard these words in a manipulative way. And I'm hoping that some women can find freedom in here. And um, I think it's going to be really great. But we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 2. 
Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So, like I said, it's unfortunate that the church has sometimes used this to um, undervalue women. Because in our culture, a helper is secondary to the primary. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've got Batman, and then you've got Robin. Or like, you've got Sherlock, and then you've got Watson. It's like, hero, helper. And so women have been told, like, you are secondary to men. You are their helper. And so men go out and they do the jobs. They bring home the bacon. They, what we, we, they go out and hunt and bring home the meat, like all of that stuff. And so women stay home. We raise the kids. We do the laundry. We make the dinners. We are little June Cleaver in aprons with a cold beer and a sandwich whenever they get home like from work for the day because we are helpers, right? But Let me free somebody in this room today. This word helper is not our helper. So the original words, these Hebrew words that are helper who is just right for him or helper who is suitable for him, these words in Hebrew are ezer konegdo. So say that after me. Ezer konegdo. I want y'all to remember this because when I first heard this, I was like, heck yes, so good. It's so good. So ezer is the Hebrew word for helper. Um, And like I said, this helper and our helper couldn't be more different. And when you're interpreting the Bible, it's really important to look at the Bible as a whole so that we're not cherry picking and deciding like what we want to believe. Like, well, we like this interpretation over here, but not over here. Like you have to look at it as a whole. And sometimes that can be frustrating even for me because I'm like, "Ah, I don't like that, but it's God's word. So it is what it is. But sometimes it turns this, like a kind of normal word like helper into a super cool word. So this word ezer is used to describe women here, and it's used nearly 20 other times in the Old Testament. And the majority of those times, it is describing God coming to Israel's rescue. It's describing God coming to Israel's rescue. And so I want you, I'm going to read a couple of verses, and every time you hear the word help or helper, It's the same word that describes women in Genesis, okay? Deuteronomy 33, 26 says, There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you, across the skies in majestic splendor. 33, 29 says, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Psalm 124, 8 says, our help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do these verses sound like they're talking about a helper who makes a really mean BLT sandwich? No, they're not because Ezer is not just a little helper that's secondary to the primary. Ezer is a strong helper who is helping in a way that somebody cannot help themselves. That is, that is what God was saying whenever he made a helper for Adam. And there are examples of strong women all throughout scripture. And I want to highlight some of them because, again, I never want to assume that, that you guys know this stuff. And I want you to know about these women. There's Miriam in the Old Testament. Miriam was Moses' sister. And not only did she help get him, she helped hide him when he was a baby. And then whenever they put him in the reeds, she was 
crucial in getting him back to his mom so that she could nurse him and then get him into Pharaoh's house. That was huge. That was a big thing. That was bold. But then Miriam came alongside Moses and she helped him get all of the people out of Egypt and back toward the promised land. And she was a prophetess. She was the very first prophetess talked about inside scripture. She was a strong woman. Or fast forward a little bit to Judges and you've got Deborah You've got Deborah, who was a judge. She was not only a judge, but she led troops into battle. Like she was a strong woman. She led troops into the battle and she was a prophetess. She was speaking the words of God to the nation of Israel. Then we've got Esther. That's who our little Lucy is named after, Lucy Esther. And she was a strong woman who was brave enough to stand up to the king and speak up for her people. There was a a scheme coming against them and she spoke up and she saved the nation of Israel with her bravery and oomph to go speak to the king. And then if we fast forward into the New Testament, after Jesus's time, into the beginning of the church, there were strong ladies like Lydia. Lydia was the first convert to Christianity in Europe. So Paul and his, his troop went over there, and she's the first person who accepted the, the story of Jesus, accepted Jesus as her Savior. She opened up her home for Paul, and then she funded some of his missionary work with the money that she made from her own business. It doesn't talk about Lydia having a man and using her man's money. Lydia was funding the work of God and the ministry of Paul with money that she made from her own business, which was unheard of then. And I think one of my... <laughs> favorite, favorite ladies that I didn't learn about until later in life is the woman named Phoebe. Phoebe is in scripture and she was part of Paul's crew. And Phoebe delivered the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, which is what we now know as the book of Romans. She delivered this letter. And it wasn't like she was like, here you go, mister. Like, bye. No, she, when you delivered a letter, you read the letter, you interpreted the letter to them, you answered questions, you helped people figure it out. And Paul trusted out of everybody in his company, trusted Phoebe to go to Rome, to go. And that was the epicenter of the known world. And he trusted a woman to do that because women are not just meek little sandwich making helpers. God created women to be strong Helpers, Ezer Konegdo, these women, we are able to aid and lift up and encourage the people around us in a way that they can't do for themselves. And that is something that is in our DNA that God put there from the very, very beginning. Konegdo is a super interesting word. So Ezer describes women and the God of the universe, which is super cool. Konegdo is nowhere else in scripture. That word is not used anywhere else. And this word is kind of hard. Um, Theologians have agreed that it's it's kind of hard to interpret word for word. This is the um, just right for him or suitable. And they have settled on, it's the idea of opposite. Like somebody that stands opposite of you. And Clint was even talking about how like biologically we are opposite. Like everything about us is opposite of men, but God did that on purpose because we can come up and we can stand opposite and encourage and call up and call out in a way that you can't do for yourself. Because when God made a helper suitable for Adam, he wasn't making him a sidekick. He was making him something that was crucial for his well-being because that is what women is, are. (laughs) When you put these two words together, 
an Ezer, you're walking side by side like a friend. You're helping, right? And then you're standing face to face and you're contending. You are standing up for, you are calling up, calling out, encouraging. That is what women have been from the very beginning and what we get to be. Like that is what God has put inside of our DNA. And that is God's design for women. So if it wasn't for the fall, men and women wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be having this clash. We wouldn't be having this tension because that wasn't God's design for us. That's not what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And so modern day feminism doesn't really fit with Christianity. But women absolutely deserve a seat at the table, and they absolutely deserve to have a voice because women are neither above or below or in front of or behind men. We are side by side, and that is what the world needs. That is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so if you're here and you're like, okay, all of this is really cool, I feel like super empowered. I love it. I'm here for it. Or if men, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> what does this mean for you? What can you do with it? There's a couple of ways that you can apply what you've learned today into your, your everyday life. Number one, remember that God created women and men equally. He created men, men and women equally. And so... Women do deserve a seat at the table, but they don't deserve a seat at the table to shove a man away. That's not what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Because everybody that is made in God's image is worthy of dignity. They're worthy of respect. They should be able to do whatever God has called them to do regardless of their gender. So women shouldn't be championed at the expense of men. Number two, we need to discuss these God-given gender differences. Don't shy away from them. Don't be nervous about it. Don't um, make it taboo. Have the conversations. Because how are our children going to know what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like if we're not talking about it? How are they supposed to know what a strong man and a strong woman look like if we aren't exemplifying it to them? We can talk about these differences because they're not scary. They're on purpose. They're on purpose. So men, don't diminish what your women are feeling because they're emotional and, they do, and you can't understand it and you think it's silly. Don't do that because th those emotions are give a gift from God, regardless of how strong and how irrational some of them might be sometimes. They are a gift from God. Talk about it. Have the conversations. Like there was after the Barbie movie, Clint did not love the Barbie movie. I loved the Barbie movie. But after that movie, we started having conversations about the, the load that I felt like I was carrying and how I couldn't handle it on my own anymore. And we had a fantastic conversation of like, these are all of the things that I feel I have to do as a woman and I can't do them all anymore. And he was more than willing. It, he had no idea that I was struggling with these things because we had never had that conversation. So talk about these differences. And so I said, men, don't discourage your women, but women don't play the victim. Don't play the victim. Men are not out to get you. Men are not out to steal your lunch money. Like, 
Just talk about the differences. Celebrate them. Men, when you see your women being strong helpers like God has created them to be, call it up in them. Encourage them in that. Women, when you see your men bringing home the bacon and going out and killing the animal and bringing it home and doing all of these manly things, encourage them in that. One is not better than the other. They are just different. Let's live in that and be excited for each other about it. And number three, this is the very most important thing and the thing that I want you guys to walk out of here with. Stay kingdom focused. Stay kingdom focused. Modern day feminism is not the answer, but neither is women sitting down and shutting up. Those, those are not the answers. The answer that this broken and dying world needs to see are men and women who are fully alive in Jesus, walking side by side, standing face to face, and moving the kingdom forward together. They need to see Galatians 3 lived out. Galatians 3 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is what the world needs to see. They need to see us look different. They need to see us treat each other with respect and dignity that we deserve because we are all created in God's image. There should be nothing that holds anybody back from being everything that God has called and created them to be. Nothing. And there, there isn't. There is nothing except for humanity. We need to just live in unity, stay kingdom focused. It's not us and them, you and I. It is us together. I want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. As I was preparing for this, I thought... I felt the Holy Spirit kind of just stirring up in me that there might be women in here who have not known these things or who have kind of lived their life um, feeling like they had to play second fiddle or they really weren't as important and what they do isn't as valuable. And uh, I want to speak life into that and say whatever you have been called to do, whether it's in a workplace it is at your house, is unique, and it is worthy because God has created you to do it. There is freedom to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. And I don't, never want a Sunday to pass where we don't give an opportunity for somebody to have a relationship with Jesus because you can't walk in unity if you don't have Jesus at the center, and so if you've never had a relationship with Jesus, it's super easy to start. You can just pray your prayer because you know what? We talked about the fall and we talked about sin and how that has messed up our whole life. And it did. It separated us from Jesus. It separated us from God because God's level is perfection. And as soon as sin entered, we can no longer be perfect. And we can't have that relationship with him now or in eternity. But that is why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. His blood covered our sins. And then whenever he raised from the dead, we now get to have eternal life with him when we accept this free gift of salvation. And so if you have never asked Jesus into your heart, if you have never started a relationship with him, you've never given your life to him, you can do that now. And you can just simply pray, God, I accept the gift of Jesus. I recognize that I have been living life on my own terms. I've been doing whatever I want to do. 
I've been sinning against you, but I accept this gift of salvation and I give my life to you because you're the only one that can do any good with it anyways. God, in the best way I know how, I'm gonna live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.